Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. Hello, and welcome to episode five of For the Love of Brantford, where we explore the evolving story of our community. In this episode, we discuss housing in the city of Brantford. I'll be talking about housing in the Victorian era and victory housing after World War I and World War II. And I speak with my great aunt Betty about the Eggman and how she bought her home. And finally, I speak with Ian Aitken from the Community Legal Clinic to learn about the housing crisis. I think this episode will be pretty interesting. We cover a lot of ground. I mean, especially now when we keep hearing in the news about the price of housing and rent increasing and there's always suburbs popping up. It's kind of interesting to see how things have changed over the years and what we're seeing now. So I'm excited for this episode. Yeah, housing is is very, we think of it as very like rigid, but it's actually very like dynamic and evolving, right? The, the things that we built before, we don't build today. And it's kind of interesting how, how the forms change and evolve kind of in housing. And by forms, you mean a little bit like the architecture or do you mean like the structure of how neighborhoods are built? The structure of how neighborhoods are built. When we were doing first aid today, the instructor told us about their, their kids running outside in the grass without shoes and socks on and the like sensation that you get and like the joy and like good mental health that comes out of like having your feet in grass and people in Toronto having never done that because all that they're surrounded by is concrete. Yeah. Just little things like that. I can't imagine what it would be like to never have done that or to not have a, have a lawn to walk on or all of that. That just seems just crazy to me. Um, I'd like to imagine it. The one time I was barefoot this summer, I stepped on a bee. Oh no. <laughs> also comes with its own dangers. <laughs> yeah, but like housing too, right? Like you look at some of the older housing, right? When families were bigger, seven children was like common. You needed a lot more space to house all those uh, kids and everything. And, you know, you weren't having each kid to their own bedroom, right? They had multiple kids inside of the bedroom. And now that's a, a rarity, right? Mandy, I'm curious because you've been a longtime resident of Brantford, are there kind of any differences that you've really noticed in the houses in your neighborhoods or the structures? Um, I wouldn't say that I've noticed a lot of huge difference in the houses necessarily. Um, Obviously there wasn't um, 
what or something that's new is how we're having a lot of bigger buildings built now, where it was like regular single family homes mostly. And now we're having a great big building built on Iriav. That I find interesting that that's happening. And it's going to completely change the landscape of the neighborhood, I feel, but it'll be good for the amount of housing that it'll bring. The thing that always sticks out to me is the like affordable housing. And another counselor I know uses the word attainable housing. And like, what do those concepts mean? Like that they're just very vague words for common people, right? And it's like, yeah, what what really is affordable? And what space do you get for that affordability? The conversation that I have with Ian Aitken later in this episode kind of will help people understand what affordable housing means in a different way a little bit. I, I just look at what I see housing going for and I guess people generally have a a good idea uh, on their income, what they can afford and what they can't afford. And uh, it seems to me that for more and more people in society, it seems like they're, they're grasping just for that basic necessity. You know, everyone doesn't need an $800,000 home or whatever, right? We need to make something that's, that gives people dignity and respect and is able to put a shelter over their head. I think it's more than that too, in the sense that even to rent an apartment anymore, people are needing to pay as much as I'm, well, as much as I'm paying for my mortgage for a four bedroom home. So it's, it's almost impossible to find a nice safe space to live. That's comfortable. The pandemic's made it worse too, right? Like just the rate of housing increases in the past two years is is unsustainable. There's no other way of saying it. Yeah. I think each of our segments actually kind of addresses a different point of housing and how to make it maybe a bit more attainable or affordable. We see different ways that it's been done through the past and potentials of how it could be done in the future. So I think why not? Let's just get started and see where this episode takes us. We know about the issues surrounding affordable housing currently, but what kind of affordable options were there in early Brantford? Some may have heard about a Brantford cottage. What exactly does that mean? Dr. C.F. Webbo was a noted geographer and planner, and he pointed out in 1966 that the study of folk housing in Ontario is virtually non-existent. In 1982, the city of Brantford basically asked the same question. They produced a study called the Brantford Cottage, of which one of the aims was to attempt to provide a definition. Other goals were to identify individuals responsible for their construction, what they say about Brantford's social and economic character, and describe the cottage's influence within the city. They noted some typical characteristics of it being nearly square white brick cottage with one or one and a half stories with no or half basements. They typically had low-hipped roofs with center front gables containing a gothic or round window. The gable may be decorated with wooden friezes, gingerbread, and or brackets. The front center door often has transoms, and some early examples have side lights. They also have radiating or rounded arch voussoirs over the windows and doors, and some have keystones. 
they conclude that about 140 Brantford cottages still remain in Brantford. So did these homes only appear in one or two areas of the city? What type of work did the residents of these homes have? They appear throughout the older parts of the city, including West Brant, Eagle Place, East Ward, along Grand River Ave, Brant Ave, Edgerton, William Street areas, Dundas, and North Park Streets. So quite widespread throughout the city. Sometimes they are clustered within a certain block or area, and other times they are just one off by themselves. Rather than researching all of the houses, they did a title and tax assessment research on a small subset of 20 addresses, with most occurring between the dates of 1877 and 1897. Occupations of the residents included two builders, a cooper, three carpenters, a molder, two painters, two teachers, a tailor, a confectioner, a grocer, a surveyor, and a saddler. It also notes that these people often had short walks to work. They mentioned Samuel Lang at 151 William Street had a five-block walk to Patterson's Confectionery. The Watkins lived at 135 Sydenham Street, where Alice conducted music lessons at their home, while her brother, William, had a six-block walk to the railroad station, of which he was the bookkeeper. Okay, so if the Brantford Cottage was an early modest house, how does housing progress into the 20th century? Well, in a construction journal of April 1919, an article is written about the Dominion Still Products Plant in Brantford. This first talks about the history of this relatively new company, whose growth was described as mushroom-like due to war contracts for World War I munitions. To expand, they acquired six acres of land bordered by Morrell Avenue and Wilkes, Leonard, and Holmes Street. They built the first portion of their facility in 1916 within 59 days, and two years later, had two more buildings within three months. In total, the buildings had 85,000 square feet of space and featured well-lit and well-ventilated departments for their workers. Wait, aren't we talking about housing, not industry? How does this fit into the theme of our show? Well, the second and much longer article is entitled Industrial Housing, which ends its introduction with, quote, many of the injustices of our social system are about to be brought before the court of public opinion. One of the first to be remedied is the matter of housing, end quote. So the company purchases and builds residence for its workers in the Lansdowne Park development in which no street was to run straight. The company invested $4.5 million to construct 100 homes for its workers and mentioned that Quote, an enormous saving in the cost of public services can be affected. 75% of the streets can be arranged to receive no through traffic. The article talks about how average rents range from $30 to $40 a month, but industrial housing means rents could be only $18 to $25 a month. With employers having labor shortages, this would be a lucrative enticement to factory workers. These houses contained electric light, bathrooms, polished floors, electric stoves, and are complete and up-to-date in every way. So this example was after World War I. Did the same thing happen after World War II? An influx of workers after the war meant that an immediate solution of building temporary, inexpensive frame housing to be demolished within 10 years 
once other more permanent housing could be constructed. In 1945, they had already built 300 structures and requested to build an additional 200. By the summer, this had increased to 500. And in September, there were 257 veterans that still needed housing. Winston Hall in Eagle Place had housed over 400 female war workers, which was proposed to be put into housing. By February 1946, the emergency shelters were crowded with over 700 people and cited the case of a cottage with a mother and four children living in one room, plus eight other people living in the remaining four rooms for a total of 13 people. Throughout the summer, Harrisville was constructed out by the municipal airport with 140 apartments. This airport community was built by Massey Harris in 1947 and turned over to the city for $1. Mayor Matthews described the housing situation as a man trying to wear a size 7 shoe when he really should have size 9 shoes. Ironically, many of the temporary housing solutions that were built to only last 10 years are still around today. So did this solve the housing crisis in Brantford? How did the housing demands continue to evolve into the 60s and 70s? Well, the airport housing eased some concerns, but others arose like the poor servicing of the community and no public representation in the city or the county to address their concerns. By the 1960s, a major boom started with Brantford among the leading municipalities in Canada with 180 residential permits and 200 apartment units under construction. The construction of the Fairview Mall starting in 1964 also spurred the creation of 1,420 single-family homes, 400 townhouses, and some apartments. By 1969, an 80-unit apartment for seniors was constructed in West Brant, with the former Winston Hall in Eagle Place being redeveloped for 100 senior citizen units. So on this episode, I talked to my great aunt Betty, she's almost 102 years old, and we talked about the fantastic story about when she was able to buy her first home. Hi, everyone. Today I'm joined by Betty Eagleton, a longtime Eagle Place resident, one of the longest residents of Eagle Place that I know. She's also my great aunt. Betty, could you tell us how you bought your home here in Eagle Place? Yes. <clears throat> We rented the four front rooms, and an elderly lady lived at the back. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you first lived in this house, you rented from an elderly lady who lived in the other part of the home. And, and she was going in a home, so they were going to sell the whole house. Mm-hmm. And that's when we decided to buy. In fact, the egg man... We had an egg man come to the house, and he said, why didn't we buy it? Oh, I said, we didn't have the money. He said, I'll lend it to you. And I take a mortgage, and he gave us the whole thing. That's so nice. You don't hear of stories like that anymore. Oh, no. No. So how, how much did it cost when you bought this house here on Gordon Street? At that time, 5500 And we paid back. I can't recall how much. Mm-hmm. A month. 
And you said you were telling me how when you went to the lawyer, the lawyer thought it was kind of interesting that you. Yes, he said we don't hear of cases like this. Yeah. Where you don't have to have a big down payment. Mm-hmm. And how the egg man was the one who loaned you the, was loaning you the money. The egg man. Yeah. Yeah. The egg man sold the, um, uh, gave us the money and we paid him back how much a month. I don't know. It, it, you know, you paid him back with interest, but it was nice that you, someone that would just help you out like that. Yes, the lawyer said we don't hear of cases like this where somebody gives you the whole thing. So what was the house like when you bought it? Well, of course, it had no cupboards, no bathtub, just the toilet and sink. And of course, it had three bedrooms and the living room, and the kitchenette, no cupboards. Mm, but you've added all of that now, and it's uh, a beautiful yeah. home. Um, no cupboards. This was her living room. Yeah. The, the living room that we're sitting in that's now the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. And that out there, but that was her bedroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was your kitchen out there. Yeah. Not fixed up at all. It's interesting to think about how you were able to buy this house for $5,500. And now similar houses on the same street that are smaller than your home are going for almost $300,000. Yeah. And that is true. <laughs> but that was sort of the price at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because people didn't make as much money back then, right? Uh, because people didn't make as much money back then. What was what would people make at work back then? Well, when I worked at Patterson's, I got fourteen cents an hour. My goodness! Now you couldn't even hardly buy a candy at the candy store for that. That's right. Yeah, but it come to six thirty a week. Wow! Wow! Um, of course, bus fare was only about five to ten cents. Yeah. Um, how long have you lived here in this house? Since I was about 23. Wow, that's a long time because <laughs> you're turning 102 this year. So that's 79 years. Or yeah. 79 years it is, actually. Yeah, it would be 79 years. Wow. That's that's pretty that's a pretty long time to live here. Yeah. And of course all new neighbors now. Yeah. Yeah, you've seen the neighbors come and go and yeah. All of that. Definitely. And little kids grow up mm-hmm. and become old. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you were telling me that this was what would be considered a Brantford cottage back then, yeah. too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a Brantford cottage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just neat how someone who isn't wasn't even family, but just delivered that, you know, knew you through delivering the eggs and just wanted to help you out to be able to purchase a home for yourselves. So that was really neat. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
I spoke with Ian Aitken from the Community Legal Clinic about the state of housing in Brantford and what is the housing crisis. Hello, can you please introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Certainly, my name is Ian Aitken. I'm a lawyer and the executive director at the Community Legal Clinic in Brant, Haldeman, Norfolk. Uh, we work with uh, people in our community that are low income. The people that we work with are on fixed income. And we do a lot of housing work. We assist tenants and represent tenants with any issues that arise with their housing. What does it mean when we hear that there's a housing crisis in Ontario and Brantford? I will, I will be speaking to the impact on our clients, obviously. But the issue of housing, a housing crisis certainly depends on your perspective. If you're making $60,000, $80,000 a year and you're trying to buy into the housing market, most people at that, uh, in that uh, situation are finding it difficult, if not impossible, to get into the housing, uh, the housing market because of prices and down payment, et cetera, et cetera. So that's certainly part of the issue and part of this notion of a housing crisis. But when you talk to our clients about a housing crisis, it's a very different perspective and the limits and the issues that they run into are entirely different. Many of our clients, as I've said, are on fixed income. They might be receiving social assistance or disability benefits or WSIB benefits if they've been injured at work. We have lots of lots and lots of seniors who are on a fixed income that is often not enough to meet their basic needs. And we help and work with uh, many people who are employed but are in low-wage jobs. Their perspective is entirely different because they simply are not able to find a safe, affordable place to rent, period. Let me give you the clearest example. The average cost for a bachelor, one-bedroom apartment, even a room in a boarding house in Brantford right now, ranges between $1,000 and $1,200 a month. Many of our clients, their total income per month is in the range of $1,100 a month. When we meet with clients who, whose housing is at risk or they're looking for a place to rent, it isn't a matter of it being difficult to find a place to rent, it is in many cases simply impossible. So if somebody's income is $1,100 a month and they're trying to find a place to live and the average rent per month is between $1,000 and $1,200, they simply can't afford it. Keeping in mind what your clients are dealing with, can you talk about why there is a housing crisis? And what is being done to address it? You know, the housing crisis and the, the lack of affordable rental accommodation in the private market has been a trend. And the issue has been building for the last 10 years and in particular, the last five years. But over the last two years, and this has been accelerated by the changes in the housing market, the lack of supply of 
rental, uh, housing, and obviously COVID, what has happened is that there's been a perfect storm that has led to the lack of a housing uh, market and housing supply. There has been enormous upward pressure on rents. And we are now in a situation I was alluding to earlier, where our clients simply do not have the income to pay for the uh, rental housing that's available. So that's why it's very, very simple. There aren't enough affordable places to rent for our clients. And again, our clients include the working poor. The question of what is being done about it, short term, I mean, there's, there's three things that can be done and that can be done very easily. It requires a commitment and an acknowledgement and an awareness by the community and certainly by government that this is an issue, it has to be resolved. But the answer is, in the short term, there has to be an increase in shelter beds and shelter accommodation. I can tell you that in our catchment area, there simply are not enough shelter beds. So emergency shelter accommodation has to be increased. Again, in the short term, there has to be an increase in funding for rent supplements. So rent supplements will assist people moving from shelter or emergency housing into the private rental market for a period of time. And then the long-term solution or a part of the long-term solution is increasing the supply of affordable housing. And we're not talking about affordable housing where affordable is considered $1,200 a month. We're talking about affordable and or rent geared to income. Can you just quickly tell us what rent geared toward income is? So rent geared to income is housing that's, that's built with, with the financial support of you know, federal, provincial, and or municipal housing, where there is uh, funding provided, you you may build uh, you may build an apartment with ten units in it. The people who uh, apply for and end up living in these rent geared to income units pay a specific portion of their monthly income for rent. So, for example, if somebody's income is a thousand dollars a month what they would pay for rent would be roughly 30% of that total income. So they would be required to pay $300 a month. And then they would, which is roughly 30% of their disposable income, which is, you know, what is considered um, sustainable housing. What does the future of housing in Brantford look like based on kind of what you've told us? And what else should we be concerned about? Or is there anything we have to look forward to? Oh, there's, you know, there's always, uh, there's always some hope. And sometimes there are things to look forward to. But, you know, we also have to look at the costs, not only to those people who can't get into the housing market, but those people who are homeless or at risk of homeless, and the cost not only to those individuals, but the cost to the community as well. In Brantford, for example, we have an issue with um, the homeless who, uh, because they don't have a safe place to live, 
It's impacting the community. It's impacting the downtown. It's increasing the costs of policing. It's increasing the cost of the community in terms of health care. We have, again in Ontario, an acknowledgement that a housing first model can really help people transition from homelessness to emergency shelter to some type of housing, whether it's supportive or rent geared to income or whatever. We understand from studies and from experience that if you meet, move someone into a housing, a safe, supportive, affordable housing environment, then those individuals are going to do better in terms of their health outcomes, their engagement in community, all of the things that are important to, um, to individuals and to our social environment and our culture and our environment. So we have an understanding that housing first is important, but we don't have enough places where people can move to where they can live in safe support of sustainable housing. So the, in terms of what's going to happen in the future, the future of housing in Brantford, what does it look like? Well, quite bluntly, if these initiatives and these commitments are made, emergency housing, rent supplements, and then building of social housing, then the future of uh, housing in Brantford looks pretty good. If those types of initiatives are not pursued, then the future of housing is incredibly bleak. What can we as like an individual do to push um, things into a positive direction? Every time I talk with somebody who is either homeless or is at risk of homelessness, everyone I talk to almost without fail says, one, I never thought this would happen to me. And two, they say that they don't think anyone cares about what's happening to them. And they all say that if they could, say, if they could ask for one thing, it's that their neighbors and their friends and their family understand what's happening and care about it. They also say that until the people who make decisions about housing, and that includes the broader community, but clearly it includes the federal, provincial, and municipal governments, until those people who make decisions about what's to be done about this housing crisis, until they care, nothing is going to change. And a lot of that means putting pressure on politicians and the people who make decisions to acknowledge and care about the issue and do something about it. We know quite honestly how to solve it. We have studies, we understand what works, but we have to acknowledge it. We have to commit to doing something about it. And the governments and the people who make choices about housing, building housing, supporting those people who need housing, there has to be an acknowledgement 
they have to care, and they have to make a commitment. And that involves a financial commitment. We covered a lot of different aspects of housing in Brantford. Um, what stuck out at you, Mandy and Nathan? One of the things from your interview that stuck out at me was the like number or the percentage of your income that you're supposed to be spending on your housing costs. And at 35%, I think I did the calculation and like it's under ten uh, under a thousand dollars a month, which is uh he talked about that in the housing market like that's very very difficult to find housing in that price range right so it really i guess helps you reevaluate your like financial priorities and be like am i on track am i off track or maybe i'm housing vulnerable so to speak yeah that's a very good point um i I think that that's a struggle for a lot of people is to be at that your income of going towards housing and most people, that's they're paying way more than 30%. Um, your interview with Ian was uh, like really eye-opening in a number of ways about like the average cost for like a bachelor apartment in Brantford and what kind of income you would need for something like that. And also then the supply part. He talks about the solution being like supply, right? Um, being one of the issues. And there is there literally has been no increase in the rental housing market so it just makes the cost go up and makes things more unaffordable for those people who already have are usually working those kind of minimum wage style jobs yeah and I think that's what we're hearing a lot about right now in the news is how there's different organizations advocating for Yes, for minimum wage, but actually also for a living wage. A living wage is no longer $15 an hour, which is what we're heading for minimum wage, right? But people need more than that to make a living wage. And it's unfathomable to think how some people can live off of what they're making at a full-time job. Speaking with Ian, it kind of made me think of the housing that different industries created in the past for their workers, which is in one way attracting potential workers to their organization. And I'm curious without, you know, having lived in that time and not seeing similar models now, like what kind of impact it had and if it had a good like long-term impact or why aren't we doing things like that now? Or if there is something like that, and I just don't know about it. I imagine it's a high cost for the business itself. So, you know, and we're always talking about profit. It's, you know, maybe not actually profitable in there. I I think that's the thing, right? It's in, in some ways people or businesses make more profit by building a higher quality or something that they can charge more money for. Um, And when you're talking about building affordable or attainable housing, that there is really no profit margin, right? So then why are you doing it? And and Ian talked about that too, right? The governments, governments and people need to realize that and say, hey, this is a public crisis. We need money and resources allocated to this. The other thing is like, sometimes there's some very unique ideas out there 
And that's the thing that uh, Mandy's conversation reminded me of, right? There is always these unique kind of one-off things that happen in our family too. I'm in our family house. It's been in the family since 1942. And when my grandparents needed to get their first place, her sister said, no, you can't afford a new house. You buy our house. And they built a house immediately next door on the same lot and then severed it, right? So then that's a thing that still happens today with families, right? They, if they have land, they'll say, oh, come on, we, we, you know, your family will, we can help you out. It's so nice how people help each other like that and that it still happens. So speaking to what you were saying, Zila, about the cop, like the wages and about how we're, you know, looking at raising the minimum wage and all of that stuff. Um, something that I just thought was interesting comparatively was Aunt Betty was making 14 cents an hour when she worked, when she was working at Patterson's. And now we're looking at wanting to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And obviously we still need it to be higher than that. Yeah. And from your conversation with your great aunt, I think if I heard correctly, if it wasn't for the Eggman, she wouldn't have been able to say get a mortgage from the bank because she doesn't, she didn't have maybe the savings or whatever. And so I think even today, there's a lot of people in that situation where, yeah, they're paying <laughs> rent more than the, what they would pay for mortgage, but no one will give it to them, the mortgage, because they don't have the savings or they're maybe in a more precarious work industry. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's, it's really hard to get out of a situation that when you're renting and not, you know, paying more than you already should for housing and then to be able to put anything away to have that down payment, it's impossible. It's almost impossible unless you do have someone help you out. And I mean, it's kind of neat that the city has, as far as I know, they still have the Be Home program, which also helps with the down payments for folks as well. So it's a really good thing for people to look into if they are finding themselves in a situation where they you know, they think that they would be ready to buy a home and need some help with that down payment or that process. The other thing that stuck out at me, Ian said the thing about uh, governments needing to make it a priority. After World War II, we made it a priority, right? And we built a lot of housing really fast across the entire country. And it wasn't the most glamorous stuff, but those houses are still being used today. And that, like, it was supposed to be temporary and, it, and it's still being used for housing and it still works. Sometimes you don't have to invent a new solution. The solution's kind of already there, right? So if, if, we, if we do it and put our minds to it, we can, we can create a vast amount of housing in a short period of time. To add to that, really, they created housing that was affordable for the majority of the people. whereas when they create a condo in Toronto, there's only a few people who will be able to afford that. So that's not the kind of housing that you want. I met a friend recently who um, moved here just before the pandemic and from Toronto. And when I asked him, "Why why did you move from Toronto? People generally that I knew of, that I grew up with, fled here and went to Toronto, right? And he told me, Living in Toronto at $3,000 a month isn't affordable. I want to have like a, I don't know, a decent quality of life. 
So I, I'll go somewhere where life is more affordable. I think that's exactly why we see so many folks moving to Brantford too from out of town is because even though it seems high to us here, it's affordable to them. Yeah. Not to be a little uh, downer, but that's a little scary. <laughs> I know. And that's, that's true though, but that's exactly what's happening when, when places are coming available here, they're being bought up right away. And that only makes the housing situation worse, not better. Right. And the pandemic's delayed a lot of construction in a lot of different places. And that too makes it a lot, a lot more difficult. So de- development needs to happen in order for us to house people, right? Um, and sometimes we also lose housing when that happens. Particularly when these are wood structures, wood frame structures, they're super light and they're easy to move. However, when they're brick structures, <laughs> they're a lot more difficult to move. And uh, that was evident this week when we tried to move the crystal cottage down the street and after three hours it still wasn't on the street and like straightened out so that it could drive straight forward so uh it was a very uh interesting process to to watch unfold and hopefully it creates some better housing opportunities in downtown Brantford. it's clear from our discussion here like housing is is not like a simple uh, issue, right? It's complex, it's multifaceted. It involves a lot of cooperation from municipalities, financing, uh, construction, right? And people that are at the center of it as well, right? So it's, it's not like it's a really easy subject to digest, but I think we did well at breaking it down for people and hopefully they will come out of this episode with some better understanding of what affordable housing is. That's it for our fifth episode of For the Love of Brantford. Thank you to Aunt Betty for sharing your story with us and reminding us that there are so many great people in our community. And thank you to Ian Aitken for providing a basic understanding of the housing crisis. You can explore the Brantford Cottages map and find resources mentioned in this episode on the library website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. And don't forget to tune in for our next episode about outdoor activities in Brantford. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. Remember to check out the bonus episodes with the full interviews with our guests. We would love to hear from you if you have a question. Just fill out a form on our website. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Etherington, and Zila Ozels. This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library.